We look at the good fight this week from two perspectives, Liz's case and Luca's case. Liz is fighting the US education system's grading system for teachers, while Luca is fighting the good fight for her brother's free legal website. Are we all just background characters in someone else's story? This is a podcast about a TV show that we have nothing to do with making, so I know that feeling all too well. A, B, C. Avoid, barricade, confront. Gather your legal briefs and put your dukes up. This is the Good Fight SBS Fan Podcast. It's our weekly discussion about the TV drama The Good Fight. It's our deeper dive into the show with an exploration of the real-world stories that influence The Good Fight. My name, it's Dan Barrett. I'm one of the editors here at SBS. I work on a TV website called The Guide. Joining me each and every week is my pal, SBS Life Deputy Editor, Sarah Malik. Hey, everyone. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm battery went a bit flat this morning, but otherwise um, I'm okay. Yeah. Now I had a pause between <laughs> saying SBS Life Deputy Editor. Right. Sarah Malik. Yeah. It wasn't because I couldn't remember your name. I was trying to build intention. And you even told you you told the world I'm your pal. You can't even remember my name. Basically best buds at this point. Oh, that's Although, what Dan says. And y- then it's like. You still never invite me out to <laughs> hang out or anything, but whatever. We'll get to that point. No, Dan's great. He always helps me. He's like, he's like my helper. Hey, we've got an episode of The Good Fight this week, which shakes things up a little bit. Yeah. Fractured narratives. Mm, uh, this is my favorite episode yet. I love this episode. I love how it just cleverly intersected a few different storylines and we came in at different plot points and the puzzle came together at the end for us. I thought that was really clever, but it was still so easy to follow. Elspeth is back. Oh, I love Elspeth. I was a big fan of her in The Good Wife and I just love her four ditzy ways. Is it four ditzy? I think she's just genuinely like she has this kind of interesting manner, quirky manner that causes people to kind of underestimate her. And I like that a lot because I think there is this tendency to equate these kinds of masculine swagger with authority. And I like how the show says that talent can come in all different ways in unlikely kind of forms. And Elspeth and some of the other women on the show show that, you know, you don't have to fit this kind of mold of what power looks like or what we associate power to look like to be powerful. So it was good to see. Now, I find it interesting you've considered this to be your favourite episode of the show so far. Yeah, it's my favourite. Because it's actually one of my least favourite episodes. No! No, Let me explain why. So I actually still really quite like it. Yeah. The reason why I wasn't completely sort of gaga for it is I really appreciate when TV shows play around with timelines and actually bring a story from a Mm. different perspective than we usually do. I think that was good, and I think that they handled it remarkably well. But one of the things I love about The Good Fight, what really draws me in each week, is I like seeing the lawsuit of the week and what they do with what's a real-life situation and put their own good fight sort of spin on it. The problem when you're doing a split narrative, and I think it's hugely ambitious for a show like this to actually go and do a split narrative, because what they actually have to do is take the case that they'd be talking about and actually simplify it quite a bit more. Mm. So the two cases that we see this week are actually very simple cases, and there's not really a whole lot going on in them in terms of any sort of greater depth or real sort of messiness. Instead, because you're playing around these two timelines and you've got characters of whom are engaging in acts that seem slightly confusing at first, but you're waiting for that narrative payoff in a second way through. Mm. While I appreciated all that, I just found that the cases were just a little bit, I don't want to say lackluster because I think both are fairly interesting and we're going to get to the meat of those in a little bit. 
But I just didn't really find that the show really went to the same level of depth on them that you I usually think find that on the show. that's okay. You know I why? Look, I totally because, understand why they yeah, did it. I yeah. just found that the thing that I really look for in the show okay. wasn't quite there for You me. like when they just delve into something really huge with a lot of themes and a yeah. lot of emotional depth and courtroom intensity. You're all for the courtroom drama. I thought that this episode was good because it like it was just, you know, those, that humdrum day at the office? Like I like kind of showing that it's not always the big gun, huge case. Sometimes it's just, you know, what happens day to day, the stuff ups, the mix ups, the, you know, it was making it more realistic. Like I felt like, oh, okay, we're in a law firm, we're in the daily grind. It kind of reminded me of that time when the the two experts get swapped, you know, and it's just all those things that happen, all those kinds of, like there's dozens of those things that happen every day in offices. And I thought that gave it a real realism. And it kind of reminded me of that time when the BBC accidentally got a cleaner or something as an expert. A taxi driver. A taxi driver. He was on air pretending to be an expert. Yeah. So for those that don't remember, this is the thing about maybe three or four years ago now where they brought on an expert to talk about the new iPhone. (laughs) And they mistakenly grabbed a person of whom was a taxi driver who I presume is maybe waiting to pick someone up. Wrong black guy. Yeah. Yes. And so he gets brought in and he's sitting there on the screen on live TV looking stone-faced because he doesn't know anything about the new iPhone. He he was marvellous though he did he was very valiant and so I think that that was really good like it just shows that sometimes even in the biggest most professional places there are those missteps that happen that are really funny and hilarious and can have sometimes a serious impact as well of course that never happened here at SBS no no we're everything always on the ball always I mean other organizations right I mean I don't have my like chia pudding next to me and car battery dead and you know it's it's all good I'm on the ball this morning no we're professionals (laughs) Right. I mean, I yeah. didn't finish watching this episode of The Good Fight 20 minutes ago. <laughs> That's no. I, I am wearing pants. That's my <laughs> victory for today. Thank you. Look, you take the victories where you can get them. <laughs> the second thing that didn't really do so well for me this week is I also love Elspeth Tassioni. Mm. I think she's such a marvellous character. But the more that they use her in A Good Fight, I'm actually wondering if textually she doesn't really quite fit into this show in the same mm. way she did The Good Wife. Mm. So The Good Wife used her really, really well. There, are few, there was one episode particularly where you start seeing into her private world and you see the world from her perspective. It's absolutely one of my favourite hours of TV ever. But every time she comes in on The Good Fight, because the show is maybe just a little bit more serious than A Good Wife was yeah. and less prone to flights of fancy in other areas, mm. it just kind of fits a little bit out of sight. It is a bit jarring. Like she doesn't completely fit the tenor of the show sometimes. Yeah. Um, I still like her. I love the, what she brings to the show. I like that moment of likeness between her and Diane and, and how sometimes you could just work with someone for so long and then not really know them or just have a moment, a bonding moment in a surprising setting. I like that too, yeah. you know, when they were having drinks. And, you know, and Diane gives her her belt and her necklace <laughs> and I'm like, what's going on here? I'm like, I wish I was in that room. I, I, I just think her outfits are always on point. So uh, her jewellery and everything. It's just, she yeah. just looks beautiful. Well, Diane doesn't give an F anymore. She's she fine. doesn't give an F. She's very much been very explicit about that. It's game on between her and Liz as well, which was very interesting to see because like you said, Good Wife was all about the female friendships and the good fight. It seems like it's about the fight. You know, it's on. <laughs> it's on between them. And I don't really buy the whole, the innocent kind of act that she puts on. Like surely she knows that you can't go around revealing people's intimacies under four concerned. I just found her her perplexing response to Diane really kind of 
rich. It, it just seemed like a straight out lie, which mm. Diane seems to call her on. What's her point cool. though? Like what's her game plan? That's what I'm trying to figure out, Dan. Like That's what I found difficult about this episode because we're seeing this storyline that's continued now over mm. three episodes with her relationship with Diane sort of changing perspectives. So yeah. at first it seems like a friendship, then you realise it's not. And we're at the stage now where it's definitely in a bit of murky territory. Yeah. But the character of Liz, they've obviously softened up with this episode. Yeah. Because it seems very purposeful to give her a case, which is dealing with her um, son who's got ADHD mm-hmm. and trying to help him get the teacher of whom he wants at school. Yeah. So, I mean, that seems like a very selfless act. Yeah. And it's like, showing the gentle side of his mm. of her personality. Look, I really like this episode because I felt like it fleshed out a lot of the characters' personal lives and I enjoyed that. I like that kind of depth being given to the show. There's just so much to talk about. Diane okay. getting some action. Luca <laughs> and pregnancy. Whoa. Well, apparently um, she got some action as well. Oh, that's right. I mean, when, when did this happen between her and Colin? Uh, anyway, there's so much to say. It's so okay, exciting. Well, let's let's um, break it down. Okay. Let's go a bit methodically here. Okay, Diane. So let's start with Diane. All she right. starts with a phone call with Kurt, mm. which is a video call by, I love you know, Kurt, by the way. Uh, everyone loves Kurt. He's so good. No. He's just that hardy, trusty guy who just happens to be a gun-toting NRA Yeah, with the worst know, politics Republican. in the world. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I just love how they played that relationship. Yeah, uh, but she's got the phone call with him, which fails. Mm. And this is the problem with using video phone calls. Yeah, they technology. never go well. Mm. I've never had a good experience with one. Okay, but the thing is, like, the video call fails. And when a video call fails, the first thing you do is you pick up the phone call. You can continue the conversation, which is what happens after a conversation, which Kurt's clearly confused, thinking that their relationship's ended over this video call. Like, why doesn't she pick up the phone? Is it a purposeful act or it's is she complicated. just... complicated. As Facebook says, it's complicated, I Dan. That just you know? angered me. You just don't do that. <laughs> Uh, but she ends up having the affair with yeah, the she bartender. Up, she's, she's, she's got game. She She's a gorgeous woman. Like she, I love her. Look at Diane. She's just out there. Now, the great thing about this bartender, and I don't know if we'll see him over more episodes to come. I suspect he'll be back. I think it was just a one-off. Well, maybe. I mean, he could have been a one-off. Mm. The casting of the bartender is particularly exciting to me. Oh, okay. You know more about this. Okay. So you've got Tim Matheson playing the bartender. Mm. And when you get Tim Matheson playing a guest spot, you don't have him as a one-off. Okay. You probably have him over a few episodes. Mm. So is this going to be a love triangle? Dan, Possible love triangle. But mm. the casting of Tim Matheson of all people in the world is very exciting to me mm. because his career has been running circles around Gary Cole, mm. who plays Kurt McVeigh. The two of them have had a number of uh, counterpoints over the years career-wise. Initially, if you look back to the Brady Bunch movies from the mid-90s, I got Tim Matheson, of whom played Carol Brady's first husband, who gets introduced, I think, in the second Brady Bunch film. Uh, but Mark Brady, her husband in the Brady Bunch, is played by Gary Cole. So you've got that relationship. You are truly a wealth of knowledge, Dan. But then like in the you, West Wing... You are like this treasure trove. You're a national treasure. Yeah, that's all I want to say. I'm being wasted here on a TV <laughs> network where I have to talk about TV. Uh, but we've got this other relationship where Tim Matheson had played the vice president in the West Wing. Right. And then he ends ah. up leaving a disgrace in the fourth season. I remember that. fourth season. I remember that. And gets replaced by a new vice president who happens to be played by, you know, one Gary Cole. So this is a rivalry that now is going to play out as they fight over the same woman. Yeah, so I think this is a bit of a sort of private joke <laughs> that's happening with the casting of Sam Matheson. But anyway, I think it's very cool. Is it? I can just imagine like one or the other just going to the same roles and auditioning for the same thing. Oh, look, that's probably a thing as well. I'm yeah. sure that has been the case, particularly sort of earlier in their career as they're trying to establish themselves. They do just seem to have a very similar vibe as well. So I could see why 
producers would approach them for the same role. Absolutely. Uh, do we also want to talk about the Luca Colin? Oh, oh my God. Like bombshell. bombshell. This is like, we need to sit down and pause right now. Um, Luca is pregnant. Yes. Which I knew was coming. Because, Did you? How? Well, because in the like interviews leading up to her, the actress who plays Luca, uh, Kush Jumbo, she's pregnant in real life. And so they decided they'd work the pregnancy into the oh. TV show, which I kind of like that this has happened. And one of the things that I think is great is when a TV show does have to contend with the real life pregnancy of one of their stars and when they actually integrate it into the show. Because usually this is a thing that they don't plan for, much like a lot of pregnancies in real life. Mm. So it really comes out of nowhere a lot of the time. And then they have to actually integrate it into the framework of the program. And a lot of shows, I think, work out so much better when they work this through and don't do the typical thing of the actress has to walk around with a giant pillow in front of her stomach, which happens a lot of Mm. times on TV. Yeah, no, I'm glad that they're integrating it into the show. What's going to happen with her and Colin? I mean, he's obviously still really keen on her. Well, I love that scene where you've got the brother towards the end of the episode. He calls her out and says, look, you're not drinking. Like, And obviously she's a bit of a booze hound if that's suddenly a big sort of t- uh, telltale. But anyway, he calls her on it immediately. He gets the feeling that she's pregnant. She admits, you know, what's going on. But if he flips that same scene from early in the episode from the other perspective, where Colin's looking across the room, incredibly jealous of this relationship that, <laughs> that Luke is clearly having he at the thinks He thinks the brother is a love interest. Yeah. Meanwhile, and... she's having like the most personal conversation <laughs> she's ever had with her brother, revealing a very personal, intimate detail about the guy across the room very jealous. It's misunderstandings. You know, like what Elspeth and Diane were talking about, you know, we are, there's all these stories happening in our vicinity and we are either backdrops of someone else's story or the lead of our own. And I like that. I thought that was interesting because a lot of these people don't even know how they intersect in each other's lives. And there's all these undercurrents to their relationships that you're just not aware of knowing things from the surface of things. So I thought that was an interesting commentary. Also, I loved that we get a lot more of Luca through this mystery brother that's just turned up because, you know, she she's a bit of a cagey character, you know. She's someone who struggles with vulnerability. Um, you see that with Colin. Um, she really struggles to be emotionally available and open to the people around her and I think exploring some of her background and her troubled family relationships, I think that gives you a bit more of an insight into Luca and who she is and why she behaves the way she behaves and just how outstanding she is to too, you know, considering that she does have these challenges, you know, a brother who's gone to prison and, you know, these complex dynamics. And Maya just kind of chimes in there when Luca kind of shares with her, you know, she's like, oh, I know all about complicated families. And I thought that was a really nice scene between them as well. Have you ever worked for a company which is organising a uh, event for clients to come along Oh, to? yeah, like the Christmas parties, right? Yeah. The, the, the whole shebang, the, well, the meet in, and greets. Have you ever been involved in organising one? Um, no, no. No, I've been to many though. Yeah, most of the time it generally goes reasonably fine. Yeah. You put out the invites and mm. the majority of people turn up. You get roughly the number of people you want. Yeah. But if you're ever in a situation where things are going a little awry and you are definitely not getting the numbers that you're after, <laughs> it becomes a very stressful time period. And we see Awkward. this in the episode where they've it's moved to new offices, they've got the two floors now, things are on the up for this law firm. But because there's this problem happening in Chicago at the moment where all these lawyers are being murdered, 
Mm. A lot of people are hesitant to turn up to this lawyer like party in the in the office. Yeah, they have all this champagne and no one to drink it. Absolutely. Uh, so I really like that. It is such a sparsely attended party. Mm. What I think is probably notable about this, and I think it's maybe the writers going, oh, well, they should have a party because they clearly wanted specific things to happen. Okay, it fits the broader theme of the Kill All Lawyers. Mm. But also, this is a show which I think is fairly obviously not a huge budget TV show. They certainly cut corners where they can. So having a massive party where no one turns up, I think fits the production needs of the show remarkably well. (laughs) I love how they're hustling here. They're just incorporating all their challenges as part of the storylines of the shows. Absolutely. And again, it's these real world (laughs) challenges that I think make shows generally a little bit better and more textured. Because it's very easy to have a party with, say, 50 or 60 people mulling around in the background. Mm. But when it's just seven or eight people with the live band and everything else, Again, like, that's this so is much real, more fun. This is real life. Like, this is, you know, sometimes people don't turn up to parties. <laughs> sometimes you have, like, these weird mix-ups at work. So I love I love the realism of it. And I don't think that it detracted from the show being punchy and still moving very quickly and having having depth either. Like I don't think it compromised anything in kind of depicting the fact that things don't always run smoothly and then there are a lot of detours and things that they have to hustle and work around uh, in order to keep things going. Yeah. So there's a few things I wanted to touch upon very quickly. In terms of uh, Marissa, Marissa, who's, you know, the MVP of the show, Mm. there's the great scene where she actually Ah. has to go and do some detective work. And she's got that great moment where she's pretending to be a parent who wants to bring her kids to that school. I just love her more and more. The more I see her, the more I love her. But I liked the way that she framed the conversation with the teacher. So using, (laughs) you know, in her Marissa ability, she's there as a fairly young parent. So, you know, the teacher even calls her on it saying, oh, you seem a bit young. And she plays it as though she's a socialite of whom it doesn't quite seem right that she's there at this public school as the upper end socialite who's clearly trying to seem like a bigger deal than she is. But she makes the reference to her husband, Dave, who's in the printing business, but also likes fixing cars. <laughs> I love that little detail. Like it was Absolutely so ridiculous. Uh, but then she, and in typical sort of good fight fashion, uh, refers to the teacher that, that she's heard about as bringing a dangerous element to the school, mm. which is clearly a code for, you know, he is not of white ethnicity. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought and that was... I just find it really like perplexing sometimes when I'm, you know, when you're doing stories or when you're reporting on things and obviously people don't spell things explicitly. It's mm. always the things that are between the lines and you can read between those lines. And then I think people deny that there is racism there because it's not capital R racism, but it's it's the things that are implied in what people say. Yeah. Um, and, and very and, clever bringing it in this way because the story, because it's like a truncated story mm. where they have to squeeze in the time, they had to introduce the element that this guy was fired for reasons beyond his teaching ability. So it was kind of interesting the way they brought in race as part of that element then, but then brought in his sexuality in the next. Yeah, and another thing, Liz's son, who's the father of the son? Well, I mean, that's a good question. Presumably not Adrian Bozeman. No. Because otherwise, surely there'd be some sort of reference there if he's in the offices. Yeah, that's what I was just thinking. I was just thinking about Adrian and Liz and it must have been that long ago before she had her son. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, we don't know. I mean, it also could be Adrian's. We just didn't see that scene. Yeah. I feel like Adrian is just kind of like this, you know, he's at the helm of this law firm and has all these like powerful women around him and he just has to try to manage everybody. Like I just, it's kind of interesting. Adrian's kind of been relegated to kind of the referee. 
And it's kind of a shame because I really love Delroy Lindo. I've been a big fan of Delroy Lindo for years and years. So it's really great to see him in a TV show, which I was predisposed to really want to be into. And that's great, but we don't really get to see him actually do much in the show. And I appreciate that the focus of this series is definitely on the women who are controlling this firm. But at the same time, I kind of wish we'd actually have an episode or two that highlights Delroy Lindo just a little bit more than what we get these days. Mm, like I'm wondering how they're going to do that. And it would be interesting to get to know him a bit more and... I feel like we haven't really gone into his character enough. Yeah. Uh, there's a couple of returning actors from the Good Wife universe that I think are worth highlighting. Uh, the biggest one being Mamie Gummer. Uh, she's Meryl Streep's daughter. And you can tell because she looks exactly like Meryl Streep. Uh, so she played the same lawyer, Nancy Crozier, in about is, eight episodes. Is that of the Meryl Streep's daughter? Yeah. I didn't know that. Uh, Mamie Gummer, she's in a whole bunch of TV shows. So you just she, know everything, Dad. Yeah, she's like, got a really good run on Mr. Robot, if you ever check out that show. She's lovely. She does a really good job. She's really good. And she's one of my favourite lawyers in the show. I really like when she turns up. Uh, also, one of my other favourite recurring guest stars you see is this guy named Christian Ball of whom's a Broadway actor. Uh, he played Carter Schmidt, who's the lawyer who was facing off against Elspeth. And I just love that guy. There's something very charming and nice about him. Uh, he's been in five previous episodes. And of course, he had Elspeth Tassioni cropping up there again. But someone of whom people probably don't remember that much is Richard Masseur, who has been, I think, in three episodes of The Good Wife. Uh, but he was the judge in charge of the mediation trial. Oh, yeah, he, he looked really familiar yeah. as well. You've seen him in so many shows over the years, I oh, guarantee I, it. I love that. I, it really makes a believable universe because, you know, as you know, if you're in a city, in an industry, it's usually the same people who are involved or that you come across or that intersect with each other. And so to do that and to kind of flesh that out through The Good Wife, I think it makes the viewer very invested because it feels very real. Yeah, and never really to the detriment of the show in feeling that you have to have seen The Good Wife to know who these characters are. Yeah, I felt like it's just an added bonus now that I've been watching The Good Wife. It feels like I have just this extra layer um, in understanding the show, but the show itself just stands on its own so well. We like to delve into the real-life stories behind every episode on The Good Fight. There are a couple of things that I thought were notable talking about. Uh, one of the things is, at the very beginning, I think in the opening scene for both storylines taking place, you got this idea of avoid, barricade and confront, mm. the ABC. Have you come across this before? Um, yeah, I mean, what was happening in the beginning, was that some hostage training that the firm was doing to deal with the threats that they have been bombarded with like they're just setting the scene for the fact that it's it's a lot more tense now at work because of the fact that they've had you know the rice and scare and the kill lawyers threat so they're setting the scene for the fact that it's a, a high security environment yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely the case. This is actually some training that a lot of organizations go through in the US. Mm. So in case it is what they call an active shooter. Okay, so I mean, we saw the real life example of this in the school in Florida recently, uh, Jackson Stoneman. We saw that take place and all those students in that school had actually gone through active shooter training before. Now, there's actually different types of active shooter training. So New York City had uh, shifted things from what they used to call run, hide and fight to the ABC. So what we're actually seeing here is more of a New York orientated procedure that takes place rather than something that's used across the country. And you're seeing a lot more people move to ABC away from run, hide, fight. Now, there's a couple of reasons for it. Particularly, if you look at what run, hide, fight is saying, if they use the word hide in that, it's really putting the idea to the people of whom are fleeing from an active shooter, saying that they have to do something which is in a submissive 
uh, sort of action. Whereas I actually want people to feel emboldened like within a situation like that. Because if they're just running and really ending in complete sort of abject panic, that's not the best situation. So you want people to feel as though they have some control in a situation. So even just that word hide is certainly not something they want to encourage. So what they are pushing is that idea of avoid, barricade, confront. Mm. Now, they've shifted away from run, hide, fight in a number of areas. You don't want to run, hide, fight because effectively what it does as well is it tells the attacker that as soon as the event starts taking place, everyone's just going to start running for the exits. So that's this easy way that someone of whom is an active shooter can just start picking people off. So if you're avoiding people, you're barricading, it means it's actually much harder for the shooter to engage in what he's there to do. Absolutely so terrifying to me that shootings have become such a regular part of the American landscape that it's just training to deal with a potential shooting has just become such a everyday part of a workplace training, um, that's that's terrifying to me because it's just such a, as an Australian, it's just not part of my imagination to even yeah, I mean, all think All we of, have is the occasional fire drill. I, I know, that's right. And even, even that people grumble and complain about. But the idea that, you know, this is something that you have to be wary about, that you have to think about, that should be in the back of your mind, should the occasion ever occur. And that it's such a common thing that, you know, everyone people know someone who might be affected or that this is something that you see in the news regularly and that feeling that that you would have knowing that that's part of the landscape uh, is just absolutely terrifying to me. Yeah. I actually love good fire drill. You love a good fire drill? Get okay, out you the just... office, you get a fresh air. And it's <laughs> have, have a bit of a chat, have a bit of a coffee and a, and a smoker outside. Is that, is that how it works? Yeah, it's fantastic. Okay. You get to meet some co-workers you don't usually meet. Wonderful. The other thing going on in this episode is the algorithm that's being used to determine mm. whether or not a teacher can maintain employment. Yeah. Now, I did some reading into this as well. The actual algorithm being used isn't just something that a principal had come up with, as is depicted in this episode of The Good Fight. Rather, it's actually a methodology that's used really broadly across the US. It's called the value-added model. Now, what it does, it pretty much exactly what we saw in the episode, where it uses standardized test scores and holds teachers accountable for what they call student growth. So that's how students perform versus the predictive model for how that child's expected to perform. Okay, so uh, uh, you yeah. are finding teachers of whom mm. are facing this exact problem. Now, the result of this is exactly what we saw take place in the show, mm -hmm. which is that a large number of teachers have been falsifying the tests that kids are doing, which is a problem in its own right because kids are succeeding where they shouldn't be. But also teachers of whom are playing it completely as it's supposed to be played mm. are in the exact same situation as the teacher in this episode where suddenly they find themselves performing less well than their peers because they're actually maintaining the integrity of this horribly flawed system. This is a really interesting debate and I think it mirrors some of the conversations around NAPLAN in Australia, which is a mm. standardised test that, you know, there's been some new rules put into place that um, basically make it compulsory for students to pass this test in order to progress in high school. And um, it's just a way of trying to to measure or put a metric to certain standards that students should be meeting because of all the, you know, controversy around public schools and students not being able to read and write at a certain level by a certain year. And I think that it shows how ham-fisted these things can be because good teaching you can't always measure in these kinds of standardised metrics. You know, like they're not always the best way to judge a student's abilities and the, the amount of pressure that it puts on students and schools to be able to tick the boxes or fit the pigeonhole 
can be um, really counterproductive. And I think that this also just mirrors things in workplaces generally, where if the focus is about ticking the box or looking good or fitting a mold or getting the stats and not about the actual work itself or the people involved or making sure that the work is great, then I think that that will always, um, it will always miss the mark because it doesn't make sense to operate in that way, yeah. uh, even though it works in a bureaucracy. Um, so I like that kind of theme of how bureaucracies kind of mesh with really the, the aims of education. I point out that the person of whom is talking about the desire not to be measured by metrics is the exact same person working in the TV industry on a website where it's all about the numbers of which govern exactly what we do. Okay, let's not get into that. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, let's avoid that entirely. The thing with the value-added model is that you actually get really inconsistent scores across mm. the board. So even very similar kids being taught by the exact same person can get wildly different scores. So it's not actually a very valid way of measuring this. And I guess maybe the good news, and I mean, all I'm going from is the criticisms of the system. There actually may be value to the value-added model that I haven't come across. So I don't want to say that I'm pro providing a value judgment upon the value-added mm. model. But what seems to be good news is that this is disappearing. So the 2015 Every Student Succeeds Act uh, removed a lot of funding incentives for the value-added model. And there's also been a large number of lawsuits across the country, which has seen the diminishment of the value-added model being rolled out across schools. So mm. it is something which is going away and there's other things replacing it, which but from the know, sounds I, of what I've read sounds guess, like it's a good thing. Yeah, like, I mean, I want to clarify, I, it doesn't mean that I don't think achievement and numbers aren't important. You know, it says me, the massive nerd, you know, with like way too many degrees that I can know how to pay off. How many degrees um, do you have? I've got two degrees and honours as well. Okay, that's yeah, all right. That's all right. Yeah. But, you know, as in just still paying that off. Yeah, like I think achievement achievement's important and metrics are important, but they shouldn't be the be-all and end-all. That's all I'm saying. Like there should be a human judgment involved and a more holistic approach in addition to reaching those benchmarks. Because I think that standards are important and there needs to be some way of measuring things. But yeah, I think that, you know, you can't get to the stage where, you know, teachers are falsifying records in order to, to be able to just catch up and keep up. Um, and yeah. I think that detracts from their work. Yeah. Metrics are important, but they're not the end-all be-all. Yes. Yes which is probably a good time to say that if you've been enjoying this podcast, mm -hmm. uh, subscribe to it. Tell your friends because we need the download numbers. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, Sarah, you're on Twitter. Where do people find you? I am on Twitter. I'm on at Sarah B. Malik. So um, hit me up online and let's continue the conversation. And Sarah B. Malik, the B stands for Baranski. Uh, the B stands for... I'm not even going to go there. I've, I've already explained the B situation, okay? Like it's... It's just, it's out of necessity because, you know, it's so tricky to get a unique handle these days. Like, yeah. I think people just buy up the handles. So. I think what Sarah's saying is the B stands for be quiet and mind your own business. <laughs> people can find me on Twitter at the Dan Barrett. If you've been enjoying this podcast, do leave reviews on your podcast platform of choice and tell your friends about it. Share on social media. We do want to get the conversation happening with Good Fight fans. And if you're talking about us across your social medias, use the hashtag GoodFightSBS. We'll be back next week with another thrilling installment of the Good Fight SBS fan podcast. It will be thrilling. It will be thrilling. <laughs> uh, we'll catch you then. So keep fighting the good fight. Bye. This podcast and its contents are not endorsed or sponsored by CBS Studios Incorporated or The Good Fight.